the media we consume has power that stretches far beyond just entertainment. And sometimes that power means pulling back the hood to expose the monsters among us for the demons they really are. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author P. Jelly Clark. His latest novella from Tor.com depicts three women in the 1920s fighting against the literal demons within the Ku Klux Klan. Jelly and I revisit his blog post on diversity in the Wheel of Time TV show, discuss the founding of Faya Magazine, and talk about the history of slavery in film. Jelly was an absolute delight to talk to. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Jelly. It's wonderful to have you here today. Hey, thank you, Travis. Great being here. So when I told the rest of the Fantasy Inn that we'd be having this chat, the immediate reaction was, oh, I love his novellas. If only we could see more of those worlds. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's all, those, those are always good responses to have. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I am hoping we'll talk, speaking of seeing more of those worlds, a little bit later about A Master of Jinn. But I found it interesting uh, when I was reading some of your past interviews, uh, you actually have a hard time keeping your writing short. Uh, and it tends to grow from short story to novelette to novella. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually, I think when I when I first started writing, I mean, I was coming from, I was always a huge fantasy series reader. So, you know, growing up, I read the, the Malorian and the Bulgarian, everybody who knows those. And I read a lot of Robert Jordan. And so, you know, you tend to write like who you read. <laughs> right. So my first forays into writing were always very long. I mean, even my short stories would be embarrassingly long. Like I would finish George's story and I'd be like, great, 20,000 words. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's a short story. All right. Yeah. And so they were this was in the very beginning. I had no idea what the market was like, what they would accept and what they didn't. And so I was just writing because I felt like writing, which is good. Right. You just write because you want to. But I had to train myself how to write actual short stories and so that itself, I finally figured out, I remember one day I figured, oh my God, the story ended at 3000 words. Excellent. You know, I finally did it. But even then, I think still, if I'm writing, especially a, a secondary world story or even an alternate world story, uh, like my novellas are set in where I do a lot of world building, my, my sweet spot for ending the story is still probably around 9000 words. And then I have to cut, often cut back from there to get it to short story status, right? And so wasn't I happy when Tor came along <laughs> and said, no, we'll take your long stories, your overwritten stories. We'll take them. Great. And so, you know, here I am. Novella is actually a new format for me as a reader. I Honestly, I didn't really know it existed until a couple of years ago, but I've been greatly enjoying diving into them. Yeah. I mean, like I said, for a person who was always overwriting, I didn't know anyone was publishing them. <laughs> in fact, um, the first story uh, that I published with Tor, A Dead Gen in Cairo, was actually a novelette. And it was one of those stories that I would write. And then I would say, I'm going to retire you to the abyss of my hard drive because there's no place to publish it. And it was just uh, almost a fluke. I'm, I think I sent out um, a Facebook post or a tweet. I can't remember what it, I was using back then. And I just mentioned I have this really long story. I have nowhere to publish it. 
does anyone know a place that would take us this long? And I think two people gave me some uh, markets. And then one person who wrote me was uh, Diana Foe, who was an editor at Tor, who said, hey, I like the idea of that story. Send it to me. And uh, well, <laughs> it worked out. Yeah, I will say it did. Um, that's great that social media kind of opens up a few extra avenues for that as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So you said you'd read some of like the names that everyone's sort of heard of before when you were first starting writing, and you mentioned Jordan. So I know a few years ago, you also wrote a great blog article about the Wheel of Time TV show and diversity. So now that most of the cast has actually been announced and the show is finally filming, what are your thoughts on how things turned out? Um, beyond even my wildest dreams. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think I, when I wrote that post, it was when we were first finding out there was going to be the possibility of a Wheel of Time uh, series. There was still a lot of Game of Thrones talk, especially with diversity and those kind of uh, controversies and, you know, discussing whether it can be. And I remember I wrote that blog post because I said, well, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time would be perfect. Because Robert Jordan, right off the bat, made a very diverse world, right? His, his world is, is, uh, has all the diversity you can possibly want. And it's not even the diversity where, oh, those people in the East are different. It's, it's right there in the quote unquote right. Western part of the world. There are diverse peoples who live side by side. And I later read that supposedly this came about because he was trying to fashion some of his world uh, based on the United States and the diversity of people in the United States. And so you can see people of various skin colors, people of various different cultural backgrounds, all living side by side, uh, rather than, again, them being in some Eastern world or something of the sort. And so uh, I wrote that, uh, thinking about uh, those ideas, pulling on art that I'd seen people do, how people would, and it was interesting how people would interpret how land should be portrayed or how fail should be portrayed and how Jordan himself, because he was at times so racially diverse and sometimes ambiguous that people created what they wanted based on what they read. And so to see that, where I was hoping like, oh, maybe this character here or this character there, <laughs> the show decided to go uh, all in, all in. Uh, from the second I saw, I think, who was going to be portrayed as um, as Egwene, I was like, oh, we're, we're really, we're going for full diversity. Great. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. And it really feels like that should be kind of the bare minimum. Yeah. So it almost feels like wrong to be so excited about that. But at the same time, like I've also seen a lot of people with some very passionate takes uh, on the other side of the fence as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And I've, I'm, you know, I, I think it's, it's something to be said and perhaps I'm, I'm not in a lot of those spaces that those anti-diverse takes were not as heavy this right. time around. Right. I just didn't see them. And uh, also, I'm I'm actually been surprised that there's been a lot of support for it. And I think it shows that many people were ready for this. Right. They they were willing to see something like this. I figure they're like, look, we've got Ogier and Trollocs. Who cares if an indigenous Australian woman plays Egwene? Yeah. Yeah. We've already left our world behind. There's no need to explain it. Right. It reminds me of, so I was watching with my wife, we were watching Battlestar Galactica, uh, BSG, the, the remake that came out in the early 2000s. 
and we were talking about how refreshing it was that uh, Edward almost played Commander Adama, and there wasn't a lot of questions about, hey, well, where does he come from? How did that happen? Right? Everyone just accepted that that's the case, and I hope that we see the same thing with a lot of Wheel of Time. Absolutely, and even as someone who uh, has only read the first three books, so that's what, like 20% of the series? Hey, they're long. <laughs> I'm still like beyond excited about the show coming out so i'm looking forward to see what they do with that i'm just only con- I, I don't know how they're going to do it because i would joke and say like i can't wait to start watching the wheel of time and end it sometime in the year 2050 uh, <laughs> so I, I don't know how they're going to do that but it will be interesting well i guess moving on a little uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy oh wow so i guess for one i was just always interested in bits of folklore and the fantastic and i kind of grew up with that around me. Um, my parents are from uh, the Caribbean, from an island, Trinidad and Tobago. And when I was uh, younger, I was actually sent there to live. And so those are the recollections of my early formative years. And I was there until I was seven or so. And I lived in a mix of cultures where there was a lot of uh, Afro-Caribbean culture and folklore that my grandmother had. We live next to uh, Hindus, people of East Indian descent who practice Hinduism. And so I was introduced to a lot of uh, Hindu stories. A lot of it was on my TV. I, I don't know how much early versions, I don't know if it was called Bollywood at the time, but that I watched of Hindu epics. And I may not have understood anything, but I, I loved the imagery. And so there's a way I always think that all of that, again, combined with Afro-Caribbean bits of folklore about uh, Sukhayant. These are like supposed to be fiery witches that can steal your soul and these kinds of things. I just grew up hearing and being around. I think that probably, um, I guess it would for any kid, right? It, it, it like jogs your imagination. I think by the time I came back to the United States, both my parents had their own interest in speculative fiction. Uh, my Father uh, introduced me to Godzilla movies <laughs> right away, and he loved watching old uh, horror movies with Peter Cushing and those kinds of things. He was a big Star Wars fan, and so we would watch those things together. My mother loved The Twilight Zone. She introduced me to that, and she would take me to the library, and I'd read as much as I wanted. So I always think those little things, those little cultural things in life just kind of pushed me into speculative fiction. And it just seemed natural that I started reading it. And uh, I guess I've been reading it as long as I can remember. Yeah, I, I feel like there are a large number of speculative fiction fans that it's really hard to pin down exactly when they started because it's just like for as long as they can possibly remember. Mm -hmm. Well, outside of just uh, being exposed to all of that, what made you want to end up becoming a writer? Uh, that took a lot longer. <laughs> you know, I think for a lot of people who are into speculative fiction, I think early on you take a stab at writing or maybe creating your own little comic book or, you know, your own drawings. And I did all of that. And I would try to write little stories, but they were for me or for my friends or little comic books or for my sister or something like that. Uh, I don't think I ever gave the thought of writing seriously for a public or a market until well after college. It just wasn't something that, I mean, I'll be quite blunt. Early on, I wasn't exposed to a lot of black writers in speculative fiction, at least not until my college level anyway. And then even when I was, I wasn't exposed to them in a larger market. 
And so it wasn't even I was consciously thinking like, oh, I can't do that. It simply wasn't on my radar of experience, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, I was much more focused on the other things I had to do. And so I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'll sit down one day, I'll write, and these books will become popular and people will read them. I think that was something that I came into, like I said, much later after college. Um, when I first, it just first popped in my head, like, maybe I can write some books and maybe people will like them. But yeah, and I think it was just basically me wanting to show that I had stories to tell as well, right? Um, being inspired by all the things I had read, I was like, I, I have things that maybe other people would like to see, and I wanted to get them out there. Right. So you mentioned that at first you kind of started out your writing resembled like the sort of like quote unquote classics like Tolkien and Jordan and all of these older works. Uh, so uh, was there a specific point where you made the conscious effort to switch away from that? Well, one, it was to learn how to write shorter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think I think you just I think that happens. You grow as a writer. Like I think a lot of writers would tell you like their first works. It's kind of funny because they can tell their they, their voice sounds like this other person they read and it sounds like this other person. I think that you, if I went back and looked at like my very earliest writings, it definitely sounds like others, right? Uh, the people you've read who you're pulling from. I think it just took a while for me to develop something that became my own voice. And I'll be quite honest. I don't know when that is. Um, I was happy when people would be like, Oh, I like your voice as a writer. I said, Oh, great. I got it. <laughs> or they would tell me, you know, people have asked me like, how did you develop your voice? And I'd say, I, I don't know. I guess the only thing I can say is I got confident enough to write like I wanted to be heard rather than writing like the people I had read. That's the only thing I can think. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and you're not just a fiction writer, right? So why did you choose to study your particular area in history professionally? Oh, man. So <laughs> would you believe I started college as pre-med? So you've seen I've oh, taken, really? uh, taken some some turns there. Uh, again, these were late things. I think I had graduated college and I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I wasn't certain. And I was in a lot of search for self-identity and understanding issues of race and politics and everything else. And I, I think I was tired of reading some, what I would call uh, bad things <laughs> or faulty things. And I wanted to be more grounded. And so I later returned to academia and I got a master's in history. And I didn't know what I was going to study when I first started my master's. And it really was uh, the various professors that I had that uh, introduced me to issues of slavery and emancipation uh, much more than I thought I knew. I thought, oh, I thought I knew everything. And then I was like, oh, I, I know nothing. You know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> and there was actually a lot to learn. And I became fascinated by that. And uh, about my first master's thesis, I was actually studying the ex-slave narratives of the WPA, right? And when I finished that master's, I still wasn't certain that I was going to go fully into academia. I I moved to New York. I worked on Wall Street, of all places, for many years. Interesting. I didn't <laughs> know that. Nothing like working in the corporate world to say, oh, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I definitely went back to uh, graduate school then. 
<clears throat> and earn my PhD in history. And so I basically study the uh, slavery and emancipation in uh, the Atlantic world. And sometimes what I study is often called the Black Atlantic. Uh, and I teach classes on that. So I may teach classes like now on comparative slavery or the Haitian Revolution. And uh, I'm currently looking at British emancipation and in the West Indies and, uh, and how it impacted American abolitionism in the early to mid 19th century. So fun stuff, as you see. Yeah, no, those all sound like fascinating areas. Uh, I kind of regret that I completely lacked any interest in history until very recently. Uh, and I'm trying to sort of catch up on everything that I've missed because it's right. it's a lot. It, it's a bit. It's a, everything human beings have, have done, right? It's a little bit. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> uh, especially if your uh, basis, your foundation of history is like early American public school system. Uh, you definitely leave out a lot. Yeah, it leaves. I, I get that from students a lot. And I feel bad because I know a lot of teachers. And I say, oh, they're trying. But, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it's a lot to cram in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I get from students a lot like, man, I wish I had learned this. I said, look, everybody's trying. Yeah. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. Well, uh, so I know since you sort of have like your two lives of the academic side and then the fiction side, you do write under a pen name. So I'm curious how and why you came up with yours. Yeah. And it's almost like I came up, so, uh, I came up with the pen name in part um, really to kind of, in some ways, I okay, several things. I didn't want students being, hey, aren't you? I didn't want that. <laughs> right? I wanted to focus on this world, um, on my academic world. Uh, secondly, when I was growing up, I always joke that when I was younger, some of the first fantasy novels that I read were the Narnia Chronicles. And so when I finished them, I wanted to read anything by Lewis Carroll I possibly could. And so I remember as a kid going to the library and finding Lewis Carroll, he wasn't in the children's section, oddly enough, and, you know, picking up something like a theological compendium on Catholic thought. And I was like, what's this? Right. <laughs> I was like, uh, pardon me, I'm saying Lewis Carroll. I mean, C.S. Lewis. My brain right, is right. Uh, nothing. I said Lewis Carroll. See, I'm using different authors here. I mean, C.S. Lewis. And I had no idea that C.S. Lewis was a theologian and that's what he did. I just thought he wrote wonderful, interesting children's books. I didn't even catch the religious illusions until much later in life. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's who the lion was supposed to be. Very good. Yep. Yep. And, it all um, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I, I said, you know what? I don't want that to happen to any other uh, kids or people who read this. I don't want them like, wow, I really liked his dead gin. I'm going to go find everything. Huh. Uh, slavery and emancipation in the 19th century. What? So I wanted to keep those two things separate as much as I could. And I don't know how what good that does, because every time I read an article now, people are like, hey, this historian so-and-so who writes under this pen name. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, if, if, if I wanted you to just always bridge the two, I, I wouldn't have used the pen name. <laughs> so just put it out there. <laughs> right? So anyway, uh, the pen name I came up with, I came up with several. And the one I finally landed on was, uh, I took basically three names. Uh, one, Fenderson, which is my grandfather's uh, first name, the last name Clark, which is my mother's maiden name, and then the middle name Jelly, which is just a word for a West African uh, storyteller from certain cultures. People may know them also as Griot, but it's the same thing. That's how I came up with uh, Fenderson Jelly Clark. Yeah, and it kind of uh, rolls off the tongue too. So it's interesting that all the individual pieces have their own backstory. Yeah, and I say it again for everyone who 
uh, writes about me, hey, it would be great if you, you just use the P. Jelly Clark, <laughs> Miss Jelly Clark, because <laughs> uh, that, that's why I created it. Thanks. Right. Well, I guess since you've sort of had that conflict with trying to keep those two parts separately, have your two halves of your life ever collided unexpectedly? Unexpectedly in the sense that I always tell people, look, I'm, I'm an untenured professor who is working towards that, right? I'm, I'm not a recent PhD anymore, but I'm working towards it. And I, I don't advertise to my department and my colleagues that I write speculative fiction, right? Because, uh, yes, I know. And people are like, and they were like, wouldn't that help you uh, uh, towards your P- towards your goals of tenure? And I'm like, oh, my sweet summer child. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be punished for it. And people now they do know, um, again, because things happen, (laughs) but, uh, you know, the, there's, there's, there's a way that, uh, especially in history, in the academic world, people want to know that you're working on your manuscript and your articles, not that I'm putting out another novella, (laughs) right? right. And so, um, you know, I, I tried to keep those two worlds a bit separate. Uh, but again, what can you do? I always remember myself um, on a Zoom chat with uh, several of my colleagues. And one of them just starts saying, yeah, I was trying to find this article you read. Then I found out that you're a writer. I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> and before the head of my department, my colleagues and everyone just starts going on. And I see you won awards and you write science fiction. I'm like, well, there, there goes that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So how have the worlds collided? Yeah, there's one very recently. So, yeah, I guess uh, with all of the Zoom explosion recently, uh, something like that uh, was more likely. I'm just waiting for one of my students to put two and two together. I I haven't had that yet. Oh, that hasn't happened yet. Okay. No, at least they haven't told me. So, (laughs) it's like, yeah, make him think that we have no idea. Make him think his little pen name works. That's great. Well, uh, if it makes you feel any better, it worked for me because I had no idea that P. Jelly Clark was a pen name until I started researching for this interview. Right. Okay. Well, uh, so you had a writing goals blog post at the beginning of this year, uh, or I mean, however many years ago that was now, right? Uh, at the start of 2020. And uh, <laughs> one of your goals... years ago, yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, so you wanted to try marketing yourself more. So how have you been approaching that? Um, not well. <laughs> I think I, I put up those uh, writing blog posts, uh, writing goals every year. And I think I've been talking about marketing myself Every year, I think I put those up. And, you know, I, I, I think on the one hand, I, I try to market myself. I guess the way I've done it is, I suppose, doing more blog, doing more um, podcasts like this, right? Um, right, right. Trying to be part of more conferences and so forth. So I guess in that sense, I, let me take that back. It has gone well. Where I probably do less of is, you know, going on Twitter and making sure people know that I wrote this thing and you can go find it here. In fact, I've taken several Twitter hiatuses, so and that's just been a place that's that's great to market yourself. And so it's just always odd because I was a person recently, you know, who wasn't getting published. So it's weird to just tell people like, hey, I published this book and I want you to go get it. You know, <laughs> it feels odd to market yourself. And it's just uh, I think for some people, it's just an unnatural thing. Uh, and you just have to get used to it. And it's funny I say this because I was just telling uh friend of mine uh, who's about to have a novella published 
uh, by tour. Hi, Charlotte. Know who you are. Uh, <laughs> I was telling her how much she needs to be on Twitter because it's a great place once it's marketed to, you know, push your not novella and let other people see you and other people in the genre. And she's one of those people. Like, I understand. She's like, oh, I don't like Twitter. I don't want say, yeah, I know. But you, it's the place to be, really. There's nothing like it when it comes to helping marketing yourself in a digital space. And so I try to take some of the advice that I unsolicitly give to others. I try to take it for myself sometimes. I think that's probably a good life motto right there. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that I just consistently hear from so many writers is that the self-marketing part is one of the hardest parts of the job. And it's also oh, not yeah. like no one goes into being a writer thinking like, you know what I really want to do is like promote myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you have to hear from your agent, like, uh, did you mention the book at the end of the thing? What? <laughs> it's like no or like don't forget to i'll probably get a text if my agent knows i'm doing this at some point like hey don't forget to plug ring shout yes yes uh almost there i do want to get uh not deep into ring shout because i want to avoid spoilers but i do want to talk about it i guess last thing before then uh, i saw that you're one of the co-founders of the fire literary magazine with i think troy l wiggins uh, so how did that come about oh man so it's funny troy and i we met um through, I think we were, I can't remember how we met. It may have been because we were both in a, uh, an anthology called Griot Sisters of Spear, which was these, uh, African fantasy, uh, short stories. And at the time I always like to say, we sound like rappers, like we were hungry, right? <laughs> like when you're first starting up and we were really, we would talk about getting published in like big places. Like I think like one of our places we were like, man, if, if we can get published in beneath ceaseless skies and we both have now. Yay. <laughs> Yeah. Congratulations. Well, we had, yeah. So thank you. We had these goals of like, we've been published in these small spaces, but we really want to take things further and do this and that. We, you know, Troy now has gone on to edit fire and win, uh, world fantasy awards and things of that sort, you know? So I think back then though, we were really trying to find ways to gain more exposure and to gain more exposure, especially for, uh, black speculative fiction. And several things happened. Uh, I think one of them was that um, Fireside Fiction put out this study, and I can't remember what year it might have been, 2015 or 2016, where they uh, pointed out the lack of diversity, especially uh, by Black authors in the paying sci-fi uh, markets, magazine markets, right? That it was really small. And I think sometime around then, uh, Troy and I were talking and we kind of conceived the idea of doing a magazine dedicated to black speculative fiction run by black speculative fiction writers and enthusiasts and others. And I think I pitched it as being called uh, Fire, basically, um, because this was the name of a, a magazine by Harlem Renaissance writers like um, Langston Hughes or O'Neill Hurston, they put out this, basically this one-time magazine called Fire. And it was supposed to, in the 1920s, and it was going to portray the most daring, cutting-edge Black literary writers and poets and others of the age, right? All these interesting thinkers who wanted to put these things out there that would challenge even the traditional forms of uh, Black literature as well as the larger literary world. And it was going to be one magazine, and it was just going to like 
I don't, th- I don't know if they, pardon me, I don't know if they intended it to be one magazine, but it ended up being one. And so I had the idea of let's just put out one magazine and it'll just be so explosive and wild and people will rave about it. And we can just get all this cutting edge writers. We want everything in here. We don't care about uh, your, your national background, sexuality. We want to see real div- black diversity in here, all types. And um, then I went to finish up my PhD and I stopped talking about it. <laughs> and I did nothing about it. And it wasn't until uh, later that several other writers uh, that know Troy, among them um, L.D. Lewis, for instance, uh, Troy, um, also the writer uh, Justina Ireland and others decided that they actually wanted to make fire uh, a real thing. And they put the money, the time and the effort into this idea and just basically blew it up. And it was no longer going to be just one magazine. It was now and it continues to be several magazines. So all this to say that I'm glad I can say, hey, I helped come up with the idea, but the work goes to Troy and the rest. They actually did it. They kind of keep me as a co-founder. I'm like the spiritual father of it. Like if I would be like, if in Star Wars, I would be the force ghost. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great metaphor. Right? Maybe because I think one of them called me a spiritual father and I was like, hey, I'm still here. I'm not Mustafa in the sky. I'm, I'm still here, but sure, I'll be a force ghost when it comes to fire. Yeah. And uh, I guess this is uh, perfect timing too, because uh, this episode should be airing right before Ring Shout comes out, uh, which puts it also just a few days before the uh, FIACON, which I think is October 17th through 18th. So yes, it's going to be in October. Yeah. So that's going to be great. Yeah. Well, uh, let's not disappoint your editor or publicist anymore. And let's dive a little bit into Ring Shout. Uh, So what's your pitch for it? My pitch for Ring Shot. I'll tell you the pitch I gave uh, Diana Foe in Washington, D.C. when I was sitting in a coffee shop and we were talking about me possibly doing another novella. I think I said, uh, so imagine it's the 1920s. Birth of a Nation is actually like a film based on dark sorcery. Uh, it's, it's creator D.W. Griffith is actually a sorcerer. And their plan is to unleash hell on earth. And oh, the Ku Klux Klan are full of monsters. <laughs> right? Yeah, like the actual literal monster kind. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the story. And uh, we have three heroines um, out to stop it, including somebody with a magic sword. Because at the end of the day, this is in many ways a fantasy story. Absolutely. A little bit fantasy, a little bit historical, a little bit horror thrown in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all those things. It's all those things. I envisioned it, but I always say I envisioned it as a fantasy story. Hence, uh, my hero has a sword. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'm a sucker for magic swords, so I definitely love that. So I know, uh, I think you said that this is not an idea, even if you were pitching it back in D.C. to Diana, this wasn't like an idea spur of the moment. Like it's been in your head for a while. So how did the idea originally come about? I think the first idea started, I, I traced it back to about 2015, maybe 2014, but sometime around 2015 or so, I started getting this idea in my head that I wanted to do a type of fantasy set in the South. I didn't know much about it. I didn't know who the characters were going to be, but I could, I could, I mean, sometimes writers get this. You can like, I could feel the idea, right? I had like a sense of the idea and I knew that somehow it involved music and I knew that ring shouts were going to be part of it. 
And so I think from there, it just started growing. And in putting it together, I pulled from uh, things I was, I pulled from thing, from histories and culture and sources that I was kind of familiar with. Um, I think I've already said that I was, uh, for my master's degree a long time ago, I, I, had, I had studied the ex-slave narratives and a lot of the folklore that I ended up using in Ring Shout, a lot of those ideas came from those narratives. Also, uh, from my own teaching, I, I teach on slavery, but I also teach on slavery in popular culture. So I teach a class called slavery in film. And so watch birth of a nation a lot. And so, you know, I drew from that and little and little by little, I saw these pieces of things kind of coming together and they would just come together as I was, it took a while. I mean, I don't think I ever sat down in one moment. I want to say like, like it was over again, a year or two year span where it was just coming together in my head where I was just thinking about this, um, listening to some of these songs um, thinking more about these histories that I knew, uh, watching Beyonce videos, Beyonce's video formation, really just like <laughs> the video for formation really triggered a lot of things, set off a lot of ideas in my head. So did Lemonade. So, you know, the sources for this story are really diverse, but it took a while to put it all together. And in fact, when I made the pitch to Diana, I still hadn't sketched out a an outline. <laughs> I had, I had, I had somewhat of an idea, um, but I hadn't, I hadn't uh, gotten it all down. And it wasn't until I told Diana, it wasn't until Diana said yes, that I was like, Oh wow. Now I, now I actually have to write this thing. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote it. And that was, uh, I want to say that was in 2018. That was 2018, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it the kind of story where you're just like, Oh, now that I've got like the official go ahead, you just sat down and banged the whole thing out pretty quickly. Or was it a longer process than that? It was the kind of thing where I procrastinated in part. <laughs> <because> <laughs> in part um, there were several reasons for my, my super procrastination on that. One, I was the, the entire reason this novella came about was because I was really uh, looking, I was really uh, working to create a contract with Tor to do a full novel on something completely different. And that full novel wouldn't come out till 2021. And so Diana said, Hey, do you have anything you might want to publish between, you know, to keep your name there? And because, you know, it's going to be a while before that book comes out. It was 2018. And that's how I ended up pitching Ring Shout. It was this idea that I'd kept. I said, Oh, I think I have something. And so I was working on my academic stuff. I was working on that larger novel in 2018. I became the father of twin girls. <laughs> so there was just a lot happening. And I think that I ended up procrastinating and procrastinating, asking for more time. And I don't think it was until like, like, a, I think I got Ring Shout sketched out and written up like in a month just because it had to get out the door. And I said, okay, it has to be done now. And no more procrastination. But I think when I procrastinated, I was like, oh, I just need a few more weeks. And I was like, nothing is written. Nothing. <laughs> but because I, you know, because I'd been thinking about it so long, I had entire scenes in my head, even if I hadn't knitted them all together. Like I knew the opening scene, you know, it was like, I was like how a person who does a movie knows their opening scene. I knew the opening scene and I even knew bits of dialogue. And so when I say it came for me to putting it all down in that final month, it was again, after 
having played with it and, you know, gnawed at it for a long time in my head. I just, I remember I just sat down, I think in one weekend and I sketched it out beginning of the story to the end. I said, this is what's going to be the beginning. These are how I'll divide up the chapters. This is what should be in them to the end. And I just started writing and, you know, sometimes it veered a little away from that, but it ended up, uh, ended up fitting together. Though when I ended it, I was like, this is the craziest, this is crazy nonsense. <laughs> and I took it off to Diana and I was like, uh, I don't, I said, I know it's a little weird. And she was like, no, no, it'll do. So I was, I was happy. Yes. Uh, it's, it's weird in the best way. It's weird in the way that like, I want all of my fantastical stories to be. That's a good compliment. Yeah. But when I first wrote it, I was like, this is, I was like, I'm done. And this is nonsense. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, coming back to my not being very familiar with history for the most part, so I guess for people who may not know, like me, going into the story, what exactly is a ring shout? Yeah, so a ring shout in some ways is uh, like it's a form of it, it's an it's an old it's an old practice that comes from parts of the South, um, and it comes from cultures such as the Gullah culture, for instance, are well known for it. And there are forms of I want to say music, but it's more than music because they are actual movements to the shout as well. And these were practices and ways of worship. Many of the songs were about worship. Some of them were about life and community. And they were sung often by uh, by enslaved people who would often have to go out to the woods or what have you to perform these acts or do them secretly within cabins or what have you. And they involve a great deal of uh, rhythm and music using no instruments, but voices and body and sticks and what have you and clapping. And they also have these movements that uh, that uh, are done often, quote unquote, in a ring. Right. This is why it's a ring shout. And so um, just like I, I had come across some of these in the ex-slave narratives uh, and there were also uh, ring shouts recorded um, by various figures um, like Lomax and others who recorded American folk culture. And so there was this rich tradition of them that I could, I could draw from. Right. And uh, speaking of like uh, reading it up about it in interviews and history, uh, you do kind of have little clips of interviews interspersed throughout the story. Are these like actual historical interviews or is this something that you wrote? No, these are things that I put together, but they are in some ways like, they're based on people who have researched uh, ring shouts in many ways, right? And I tried to put them into the voices of uh, certain characters, yeah. Okay. And then, so you mentioned that you teach a class on slavery and film and that you've watched Birth of a Nation quite a few times. Yes. Uh, so are there any other important films that you cover in that class that maybe readers should be more aware of? Oh, well, I mean, I cover, <laughs> I cover a, a history of slavery and film and I start off with Birth of a Nation. So, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, for the purpose of this book, I don't think so. But I mean, you know, they're general uh, it goes through the history of how slavery has been tied with American cinema. So I think after Birth of a Nation, for instance, we look at films by Shirley Temple, right? Uh, like the Lilith Rebels, those Colonel. We look at Gone with the Wind, and then we move into the 1960s and the 70s with Roots, and then we move into the 80s with films like Glory. We look at films, uh, foreign films, like from Brazil, like Quilombo, or films from... Um, Cuba, like The Last Supper, which are about slavery. Or we look at uh, this film called um, Quimada or Burn, 
1969 by the Italian director uh, Ponte Corvo, the same guy who made Battle of Algiers. Uh, in fact, he made this film after the Battle of Algiers. It's just his lesser known film and it stars Marlon Brando, of all people. You know, and so we move our way up and discuss these films and we discuss them as films. We compare them with the history of slavery, but we also look at uh, media studies and um, what films are trying to impart and what they are trying to communicate and the political economy of uh, film and what films can be made and what can't and so forth. And, you know, we bring it all the way up to uh, a modern day with looking at 12 Years a Slave. And I think in the last class, the last film we looked at got the most conversation was actually Get Out. And so we looked at films that aren't directly about slavery, but use so many of the slavery motifs uh, that by the end of the class, it being the last film of the class, my critically eyed students could point out all sorts of things that I didn't catch. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I realize uh, a question like that is basically like, oh, hey, can you sum up your entire class in like 30 seconds? Uh, so... <laughs> And I managed to do it. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, that gives me a starting point to check out a lot of, especially foreign films that I hadn't heard of before. Right, yeah. And yeah, and I think that kind of class is interesting too because art and the media we consume has a lot of power beyond just what someone might take away at face value. Right. Uh, and so following on from that, you said before that your goal is to write visionary fiction and alternatives to unjust systems. So how do you balance like an anger at these oppressive systems with presenting an optimistic alternative? Uh, that's a good question. I suppose I'm, I've never been huge on dystopian fiction, but I understand uh, the critique of some utopian narratives. And so I guess for me, I'm always looking for those balances, right? Where I, I want to talk about these systems of injustice, but I also want to show these struggles against them and leave people with the hope that uh, the fight can happen, even if it doesn't mean, even if it's not a short victory, right? That uh, there is room to struggle, right? I always think of, uh, thinking of BSG, I think of, uh, there's that line that Starbuck uh, says, um, it's when they were on that, that planet, I forgot it was New Caprica or whatever, and they and uh, the Cylons had occupied them. And while they were arriving, uh, I think uh, Chief says, "Like, what do we do now?" And she says, "We fight them until we can't." And so I think of my books in some ways when I deal with things like in Ring Shot and all these things. I I try to show people fighting back until they can't. Right. Well, and then also, so you mentioned uh, you pitched Ring Shout back in 2018 or so. Uh, so considering the speed the publishing industry works, uh, that's well before the hot mess that is 2020 came around. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hesitant to say that it's unexpectedly timely now since the issues tackled in the story have been relevant for a long time. Right. But is there anything in particular you hope that readers here in 2020 take away from Ring Shout? Um, I guess that... Uh... I guess several things. One, that uh, some of these themes are not new, that they're old. Some of these struggles are old. Ringshot itself deals with external struggles, but it also deals with internal ones and discussing how the victims of oppression um, may internalize some of the things about them and how they process through that. And that's always needed in these kinds of times, because I think sometimes there are all these external struggles, but we may not think about how they are impacting us uh, internally and what that means. And so I think Ringshout speaks to that moment. Like you said, even if, in a sense, I, I didn't write it for this moment, I didn't see this moment coming. Um, and so I wrote the story long before this, but I think 
I think people can find parallels and see that the times that we're in are at once unique, and yet uh, there are other parts and times that rhyme along with it, right? Yeah. Moving on a little from Ring Shout, uh, I believe, so you talked about that novel that you contracted with Tor that's supposed to come out in 2021. So I believe that's a master of gin. It is. Right. Is there anything you can tell us about it? Uh, it's it's a return to the world that um, I started in a dead gin in Cairo. So it's going to return to familiar characters such as Fatma, the uh, special agent with the Egyptian ministry of uh, magical entities and what have you. Um, and it is a new adventure, which I finally get to do in long form, right? In full, uh, novel form. And so, uh, I think people will, hopefully people will be happy to see, uh, Fatima back as well as from the haunting of Tramcar 015, they'll be able to see, uh, people like Hamed and Onzi. And, uh, I just wanted to really expand on that world a lot more and to give people, um, a bigger peek into it in what is hope through what is hopefully a fascinating story. Yeah, I I can't wait. Uh, and I guess since we're still a few months away from that coming out, uh, in the meantime, should potential new readers should they pick up the Haunting of Tramcar zero one five and a Dead Gin in Cairo before they get into that novel? Sure, I mean it it'll it'll certainly help. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I said, it won't hurt. Uh, so sure, um, a Dead Gin in Cairo, which is uh, you can hear on audio or you can purchase the kindle or you can uh read it online at uh, tour.com a digit in cairo and then after that the uh novella uh the haunting of tram car 015 or 15 people say either one i say 015 but i'm not a stick if you say 015 that's what i'll go with as well i say 015 but i've noticed people say 15 so i'm like that's fine (laughs) (laughs) so um they can you guys can pick that up please and you can get that from uh as well as in uh, print form or ebook and there's also an audible for it so yeah those two books i think i, I think that reading those two will make uh master of jin more delightful because there are little jokes and little tweaks there that harken back to the earlier uh, works. Well, in your blog post you had announcing Ring Shout, you mentioned that your contract with Tor included two standalone novels. So I'm guessing, obviously, A Master of Jinn would be one of these, uh, but should we be expecting to see more of that same world with the other? Uh, I have not decided what the other one is going to focus on yet. Okay, fair enough. So um, (laughs) it may or it may not. I haven't haven't decided. I, I get to open up. I also have two novellas, so... Uh, one of them is Ring Shout, and one is another that has to be completed. So, is is that also undecided at the moment? Um, that one, if it if it goes through as I expect, that one will be a secondary uh, fantasy world about an, an undead assassin. <laughs> so. I am very interested. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, more of your work coming in the future. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Then to uh, step briefly away from your work specifically, uh, what are just some books you've enjoyed lately and you can recommend? Oh, man, what have I? I've been reading, like right now I'm reading uh, Seth Dickinson's, um, I think it's the third book and maybe the final. Okay, I think there's one more coming, I believe. Oh, there's there's one more after the Tyrant Barokoromont? So, yes, I'm reading the Tyrant Barokoromont because I just love his, his writing. And so I'm reading that now. I'm really looking forward to reading... Uh, uh, Andrea Hairston's Master of Potions, which I hear also pulls on 
folklore, black folklore and those kinds of things to create this fantasy world. So can't wait for that. Uh, I just finished up um, S.A. Chakraborty's uh, The Empire of Gold, which was just a great ending to that entire series, her trilogy. Uh, last great book I read, The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex Harrell. Um, prose was just amazing. Uh, Tonio Chibuchi's, um, why can't I think of the name right now? Uh, Riot Baby, which is... Uh, which is which is the book that is definitely made for this moment, <laughs> though he also started writing it long before this moment. Man, is it made for this moment. Um, I just read for the first time, just before the series started, I read Lovecraft Country, and I liked it, even though I, I should warn people that the adaptation is taking its own liberties, as adaptations are expected to do. <laughs> so you're not going to get the exact same story. Yeah, I think those are some of the things that... I'm reading or looking forward to right um, right now. Yeah, some of those I will be happily adding to my to be read list, and some of those I've already read and loved. Uh, well, Jelly, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was uh, great. You can find P Jelly Clark on Twitter as P Jelly Clark, or at his website pjellyclark.com. Ring Shout is that special kind of story that blends several genres and has something to say about our society. I will definitely be thinking about it for months to come. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We just released our first bonus episode, and we'll release another once we hit our next Patreon milestone. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.